Okay. We'll let some who are coming in get into their seats and then we will proceed. It is really good to see everybody this evening. We're going to uh, get into our seventh part, part seven of our study on the Genesis flood and been emphasizing that it is a true historical event. And probably have one more, one more lesson in this series in some form of video format. I'm not gonna show very many uh, very many illustrations this evening. It's going to be more of a scripture study. But um, I want us to look at the text. And part of what I've been trying to do in this particular, in, in this particular, um, <clears throat> in this particular study, as I've said in this second slide, and I keep repeating this and showing it for every presentation, the purpose of this study is to assure the Bible student that all of the details in the, flood, uh, in, in the flood account in Noah's day are reasonable and believable. This, I've tried to design this to be a true faith building study. And uh, again, I know some I think have been to the ark, uh, a number of us have, we went together a few years back and it is a, a really encouraging visit, tour, and that alone can help build your your faith to see that everything works. And I've tried to bring that out in these various slides. Now, what I want us to look at in particular this evening is when we're talking about the flood, we see, we'll look at this in a, in a scripture in a moment, but we see God used two means to bring the flood upon the earth. And I want us to look at, and I, I neglected to put this particular verse of scripture in the presentation, but in Genesis chapter two, and I'll read beginning with verse one. And of course, the first chapter is the creation account from beginning to end. But as was common in Hebrew literature, a story could be told from beginning to end and then it could be told again right after that from end to beginning. And that's what Genesis chapter two does. It, 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 it kind of comes at the end and goes back to the beginning. You have man there, Adam, and then he, all the animals are brought before him and so on. But beginning with verse one in chapter two, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which, he, which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens before any plant of the field was in the earth and before the, any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So when we come to Genesis chapter six and God looks throughout the world and he sees that in verse five, 
every thought and intent of man's heart was only evil continually, then he decides that he's going to destroy the world. Well, he's going to, not going to destroy the world, so to speak, although that would have certainly a catastrophic effect. But he was going to destroy all mankind and all living things upon the earth. Now, I think we can understand that for the most part, the fishes of the sea and the sea life survived because that was water. Uh, but probably a lot of them died as the earth flooded and then as the waters receded later, and you probably had a lot of dead fish in the dry ground afterwards. But for the most part, I think we can understand it would be reasonable to assume that, that basically the sea life survived. There might have been some uh, effects on some of the sea life because of the violent nature of, of, of which the waters would have uh, gone, you know, be, because of the kind of flooding we're talking about. But by the time the flood came along, we have no record of it ever having rained. Now look there in Genesis chapter 2 again, the first several verses, God watered the ground with a mist coming up. We don't see a whole lot of dew in this part of the country, I don't believe. But I've lived in parts of the country where you'd wake, wake up in the morning and the ground, the grass was wet with dew. But then the sun would come out and it would dry it off and it would evaporate and so on. Well, a mist. It could be that that was, that, that our atmosphere in those days, in the, in the first part of existence on this, of, of mankind and the animals upon this earth, until the flood, it could be that our atmosphere was a whole lot different, that it was a whole lot more permeated with moisture than it is today. I read one time a number of years ago that, that if, all of the moisture in our atmosphere rained out. It all somehow rained out all at one time. That there would still only be, I believe they said, just a few inches of water covering the face of the earth. But obviously the flood described in the scriptures was a whole lot more than that. It said that the mountains were covered. Now it could be that the mountains were not as high then as they are now. And that could be one way that God caused the waters to recede off the face of the earth after the flood. He could have even pushed up new mountains as far as that's concerned. But there were still mountains and all the mountains were covered. So that's obviously more than just a few inches or just a few feet of water. So what I want us to look at is the text in chapter 7 of how God brought that flood into being. And so the question I really wanted to look at this, in this particular section of our study, I want to ask the question, where did all the water come from? If there was not sufficient moisture in the air, in our atmosphere, to cover the earth all the way up to above the mountains, and I believe we're going to see that it wasn't just barely covering the tips of the mountains, but for quite a depth above the mountains, well, where did all that water come from? Now, obviously, God can do whatever he wants to do. He created the earth. He created all of the features of the earth. He created the atmosphere. He created the, the cycle of nature and so on. So he could have said, I'm, I'm just going to instill more moisture there. 
during this flood period and, and there's going to be enough rain. But that's not where he brought all of the water from. So where did the water come from? In chapter 6 and verse 17, behold, God is talking to Noah. I myself am bringing flood waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh which is in, the bre- which, in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So God is going to completely inundate the world, as we might refer to it, with floodwaters. I've lived through floodwaters a number of times, living down in the Gulf Coast for many, many years. My house flooded a number of times. Um, It was just part of reality. It's kind of like someone says, well, that's terrible. Maybe the government should do something. You think the government can stop floodwaters, can stop rain, can stop hurricanes? That's impossible. Now, they did ultimately come in and and lay down some new building codes so that if a house suffered more than 50% damage, if they wanted the government to come in and help with the relief aid, they had to raise their house above the floodplain. And in some cases, you're talking about 12 or 14 feet high on stilts. And I saw a whole lot of that. even worked to help bring some of that about uh, for a period of time. But it's kind of like buying a house on a golf course and then complaining because golf balls are flying in your yard. If you don't want golf balls to fly in your yard, don't buy a house on the golf course, right? Uh, And I've sent some of those golf balls into people's yards, you know, so I can speak from experience. (laughs) Um, But so everything that is on the earth shall die, God told Noah. Then in chapter 7, in verse 4, after God had guided Noah to complete the building, the construction of the ark, then he says to Noah, for after seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. So God tells Noah, I'm going to cause it to rain. I've wondered many times if part of Noah's message seemed difficult for people to believe, now of course, again, wickedness prevailed throughout the world at that time, throughout all of humanity. But if Noah was telling them, you know, it's going to rain. God's going to flood the world. It's going to rain. Well, if they had never seen rain, I wonder if that was maybe one feature that they had difficulty accepting if they had never seen rain, much less on that kind of of scale. But God tells Noah, I'm going to cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And it's going to be sufficient to destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. So that would not be just a few inches or even a few feet of water. It would have to inundate everything. And again, it would have to go up covering the mountains because... What would, now you might say, okay, some of the simpler forms of of animal life, they could not escape. And so they would be quickly destroyed through floodwaters. But the more sophisticated and the more complex life forms, what would they do? They'd start moving to higher ground as the floodwaters rose. And they just, as they saw the floodwaters, they'd just go higher and higher and higher. I saw that. I saw where, when, Hurricanes were coming through and the floodwaters were rising. Well, guess what? You might think snakes aren't very smart, but they're smart enough to get out of the water. 
when it's rising. And I saw them, you know, coming out and finding dry ground. So it's going to rain 40 days, 40 nights. In verse 11, and this is a time, a point in time that we need to keep our mind on. I'll bring it back in a little bit. Verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, sometimes husbands and wives get tired of looking at each other after being together for, you know, maybe a week or so when you can't get away from each other. You know, that imagine living together for 600 years. <laughs> in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were open. Now, the windows of heaven would point, point at, that's poetic language, for it started raining. But notice, the fountains of the great deep were broken up. The fountains of the great deep. Keep that in mind. All right. So we move further in ver uh, to verse 17 of chapter 7. Now the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. Another verse of Scripture says it went to and fro upon the earth. Now we noted, as we looked at the construction of the ark, that it was not just made well, but it was virtually the perfect scale in the architecture, in the building features for a large vessel to float upon the surface of the earth. Had no rudder, had no propeller, had no oars. It was not made to go anywhere just to float on the surface of the earth and save all of the life that was therein. Noah, his family, and all of the animals that were brought into the ark, guided there by God. So the waters increased and lifted up the ark, and, and it rose high above the earth, all of the features of the earth. In verses 19 and 20, the text goes on, and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. Now, I think we're to understand that that language is indicating to us that when, when the waters came to the highest point of the mountains, however high they were at that time, that the waters continued to go 15 cubits above the highest peaks of the highest mountains. Everything was covered. There was no dry land. It was a worldwide cataclysmic flood. Okay. Now, in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1, then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. So a wind passing over surface waters will do a couple of things depending on what the features are around whatever that body of water is. Number one, the wind will help evaporate the waters and the evaporation will go back up into the atmosphere. Well, after raining for 40 days and 40 nights, I would, I would imagine that the atmosphere needed to be replenished with the moisture that had rained out to a great extent during those 40 days and 40 nights of incessant rain. And I don't think we're to understand that it was just a, you know, kind of a, a steady little trickle or sprinkle, but it was inundation of rain 
we're talking about in a very short time, all of the earth being flooded. Okay, God made a wind to pass over the earth. Now the wind also would have the, the uh, characteristic of pushing the waters to lower levels if there were lower levels to be pushed to. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. In verse two of chapter eight, the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. So after 40 days and 40 nights, the rain stopped and God closed up or stopped the fountains of the deep, the waters coming from up from the earth's crust. Well, we'll move a little bit further and we look in chapter eight, verses three and four. The waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the waters decreased. Now, perhaps what we're to understand there is that the flood, the, the earth was flooded for 40 days and 40 nights. And then the waters remained upon the earth for a total of 150 days before God started causing the waters to recede. So at the end of 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month of the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat. So when the waters started receding sufficiently, the ark was over mountains. Now those mountains still exist. And you keep hearing about and reading about and seeing documentaries about somebody thinking they saw some kind of wooden feature up in the mountains around that area that resembled a boat. And I don't know that anything has actually been confirmed about that. A number of expeditions have been undertaken, but the last I saw, none of them ever reached that point. Weather set in and they, had, they were driven back. But the ark rested in the seventh month. Now remember when the flood started in the second month of, that, of the 600th year of Noah's life. So the mountains of Ararat, that was where the, the ark came to meet dry land and rested upon dry land again. In verses five and six, the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. So started the decrease and the seventh month, but now if you're up on a mountaintop someplace and okay, so the ark comes to rest up there, you're gonna look around you and see, yeah, but yeah, everything else is flooded. Everything else is still flooded. We can't really go anywhere much. And so they stayed in the ark. So in the 10th month and the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made. And so he began sending out the birds. And of course, at first they came back because they did not find dry ground uh, or, you know, any trees, you know, that they could light on. And then it was the third attempt sending out the dove the second time that uh, he never came back. Yeah, I, I believe the, the first dove, I believe the first dove came back and had a twig, you know, in its, in its uh, that he brought back to the ark. But still, the water was all over the place. And if you're thinking about they were 
looking out of that upper deck window, which was the only window, well, from there, they probably could not see down very well. They just see kind of a, of a, uh, view of the whole landscape, or in this case, the waterscape, and, and, and certainly they would still, you know, kind of a panoramic view, and they'd still see water all over the place. So in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. When did the, when did the rain start falling? In the second month of the 600th year of Noah's life. When did God tell Noah, okay, the earth, the earth is dried now. You've got dry ground out there. You can get out and start taking care of things. The second month, on the 27th day of the month of his 601st year. So the flood, while it only rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and I think we can understand the fountains of the deep only shot up in whatever ways that was happening, the water from the crust of the earth for those 40 days and 40 nights. The earth was flooded for a year. It was a year-long flood. Let's move a little bit further. So, in chapter 7, verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month of the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. Chapter 8, verse 14, in the second month and the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. We're talking about a whole year. The earth was flooded for a whole year before the waters receded sufficient for Noah and his family to let the animals out to find their places and for he and his family to get out and start living on dry ground again. Now, the flood and its effects lasted one full year. It took over six months for the waters to fully recede. Well, you can understand that if you're talking about water prevailing for 15 cubits above the highest mountain peaks. God using natural means, the winds, to start evaporating the water and pushing the water to lower levels and some other possibilities. But it took six months for the waters to fully recede. So again, the earth was flooded for a full year. Now, that, that statement that God broke up all the fountains of the great deep, that would have unleashed massive reservoirs of water stored in the crust of the earth. We have massive amounts of water in the crust of the earth today. What do we do when you live on a farm. You grew up on a farm, right? Any others grow up on a farm? Okay. Did you have a well? How'd that well come to be? You drilled for it, right? Because there's water down there. When I was living in southeast Louisiana on the Gulf Coast, no, no houses had basements unless they built the house up, somehow raised it, and then put a basement in under that elevated dirt that they brought in before they built the house. Because if you dig three or four feet, you'd hit water. Well, there's water in the crust of the earth. One of the largest underground rivers, I believe it is, or reservoirs in the United States is 
under Nebraska, is my understanding. There's water down there, huge amounts. God did not just cause it to rain, he broke up the fountains of the deep, and that would have released, unleashed, massive reservoirs of water stored in the crust of the earth. Now, almost certainly, this meant that God, when it says he broke up the fountains of the deep, then this probably meant that one way he did that was massive earthquakes that would have cracked open the crust of the earth. Cracked them open and released the waters that were down under. But also, he probably caused volcanic eruptions across the globe. And approximately 79% of all of the gases that are released from a volcano when it erupts is water vapor. Water vapor. That's a lot of water vapor. Now, we, we look at one volcano that erupts, Mount St. Helens, some of us remember that. In Washington State, when that erupted, that made probably worldwide news. I've been there, my wife and I, we've seen into the crater that is there from when that side of the mountain blew. But now, what if that were to happen on a scale that mankind has never seen since the flood? What if, what if there were volcanoes erupting all around the globe and releasing all of the water through that eruption? into the atmosphere and upon the earth. Plus, earthquakes all over the globe releasing massive amounts of water stored in the crust of the earth. You see, and in our next section of the study, I want to talk about how we date the earth and the levels of strata and how a cataclysmic flood would have completely reset how we date the age of the earth. That's an interesting study. And I'll try to not make it as dry as dust, but um, to get the, the information across. But I hope you'll be intrigued by it. So earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, we can understand both of those, I believe, reasonably from the text that says God broke up the great fountains of the deep. Now, again, we drill for water, don't we? We drill for water. So, where did all that water go? There was a whole lot more water on the face of the earth after the flood than there was before the flood. Where did all that water go? Into the atmosphere, for one thing, to replenish the moisture that had rained out during those 40 days of rain. Some probably went back into the earth's crust. God could have caused that to happen just as easily as he could have caused it to gush out of the, of the earth's crust. And then a great deal of it undoubtedly created new lakes, new rivers, and a whole lot of it flowed back into the seas. The oceans may not have been as large 
before the flood as they are today. There are evidences in various places around the earth where there used to be rivers there, but it's dry land now. There are no rivers there. Or maybe massive lakes, no lakes now. Well, again, God, when he caused the winds to blow and then as the waters receded, pushed into rivers, flowed into seas, lakes could eventually have dried up, rivers could have dried up, but we still have some massive lakes and rivers, don't we? The Great Lakes are incredible for, their, for the mass of water that are in them. You have ships at sea in, in one or two of the Great Lakes at least that, are, that have sunk and they're just, shoot, they're down there. That's how deep those waters are. And they're massive in scale. So various float into various seas around the world. Now, what we need to understand, let me go back here, is that if God could cause the flood to be, then God could just as well have caused the flood waters to recede. And again, God could have used other means to cause the flood waters to recede that we don't think about. The mountains, they may not have been as high then as they are today because God could have pushed the mountains higher. He said, wait a minute, that's it. God created them to begin with. He could have done whatever he wanted to with them. He could have pushed them higher to cause the flood waters to recede down to the lower levels quicker. And again, that wind that he caused to blow across the surface of the waters, we think it gets windy in Nebraska, don't we? Well, what if it was three or four times that magnitude of wind blowing across the surface of the waters? It would evaporate a whole lot more water more quickly than what we're used to. And it could have more of an effect of moving that water along in those new rivers, out of those new lakes, into some lower areas that would flow into other rivers and ultimately into the, into the oceans. The Gulf of Mexico is fed to a great extent by the Mississippi River. The farther south you get in the Mississippi River, the wider it gets and the deeper it gets. And I was told many years ago that the Corps of, Army Corps of Engineers continually dredge the mouth of the Mississippi River constantly because of all of the silt, all of the sediment that is swept down from the northern part of the Mississippi River all the way down through the whole country down to the mouth of the, Gulf, of the Mississippi that flows into the Gulf of Mexico. And so they keep dredging that so that those huge ocean-going ships can come into the Mississippi River from the Gulf of Mexico and start moving up the Mississippi River to ports where they will unload their cargo. We look at our physical bodies. The scriptures say that we're wonderfully made. We look at the features all around the earth. It's wonderfully made too. God is the master designer and creator. He told Noah just how to build that ark. For 
thousands of years, it was the largest vessel that had ever been built. Took us a long time to match it. And it took us a long time to figure out, you know, those, those, that scale is just about the perfect scale to build that kind of a ship. But God knew it all to begin with. How can it make sense to not believe in God? And if we believe in God, how can it make sense to not obey God? Our invitation song is number 913, 913. This evening, if you have held back from repenting of your sins, openly confessing your faith in Christ as God's son and your Lord and savior, and being baptized into him, immersed in the water, so the blood that is shed on the cross could cleanse you of the guilt of your sins, what sense does that make that you're still waiting? If you need the prayers of the church for whatever reason, does it make sense to hold back on those prayers? We're here, just ask us. And we can talk, we can study, either publicly or privately. If you need to come, won't you come right now as we stand together and sing?